ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the gun rack, Sonoran Desert Institute School of Firearms Technology's official podcast. I'm Drew Poplin with you here today. Sorry about the lack of episode last week. Uh, yeah, I was. Still kind of recovered from working the Great American Outdoor Show put on by the NRA. That was up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It was interesting last year because we were doing the event in shifts, or at least we did this year and last year. Last year, I was on mid-shift, and it was it was pretty slow. It was fast for me at the time, but working the beginning shift, so you know that included setting up everything. I think I ended up getting there. Two days before the event started, uh, the day before we set up and everything. But you know, working that opening shift, I felt like things went a lot quicker. I'm guessing just because there were so many folks that were at the event at that time. Got those delicious milkshakes, which is basically like an elevated Frosty, uh, but in a good way. Got to meet some grads, some current SDI students. That was awesome. And best part for me was even got to meet some members of the gun rack mafia i'm not going to share their names uh, truthfully because i totally forgot to ask if they'd be cool with me doing that so you know i don't i don't want to put them on blast just in case they don't want that so if you're listening you know who you are but that was probably the highlight of my trip getting to meet people that knew about sdi because of the podcast is uh is nice and reaffirming unfortunately because the booth was so busy for the majority of our time there didn't have a whole lot of time to just walk around to the various other booths and you know get some more information on some of those products. Uh, luckily, I feel like we covered a lot of the big releases during our SHOT Show review episode. You can go and listen to that. It's one of our more recent ones. But since I arrived early, we, you know, we woke up early the day before. We set up the booth, got all that sorted, ate some lunch, and then we still had plenty of time. So we were able to hop over to the National Civil War Museum. And as such, I thought it'd be fitting to do an episode on what I learned while I was there. Um, as you can tell from the title, we are talking about just trying to do a general overview of the entire U.S. Civil War. So that's going to be very exciting. Before we get into that, let me talk about SDI real quick. Sonoran Desert Institute SDI is an online school that helps students learn the skills and techniques they'll need to be successful in the firearms and unmanned technology industries. SDI is accredited by the Distance Education Accrediting Commission, that's the DEAC, and currently we offer three programs in firearms technology. We offer the Associate of Science in Firearms Technology, the Certificate in Firearms Technology Gunsmithing, and those are going to be sort of more your broad foundational courses but we are now also offering the certificate of firearms technology handgun specialist program as the name suggests it's very heavily specialized and focused on handguns so you're going to be going through all the different platforms revolver striker fire and hammer fire pistols if you want to learn more about that particular program we have an episode where we talk 
with Rick Kasner all about that. Uh, it's quite informative. But for more information about any of those programs, you can go to our website. That's www.sdi.edu. Again, that's www.sdi.edu. So today we are going to attempt the impossible, ladies and gentlemen, which is summarizing the entire U.S. Civil War in 30 minutes or less. You know, keep in mind, that this is a very broad review of the buildup events and aftermath of one of the most important wars in American history. Almost every single one of these moments could be an episode in and of itself. And furthermore, there will be events and elements from this conflict that aren't covered. So again, squeezing all this into 30 minutes is borderline impossible, but we're here to make the impossible possible. Never mind the fact that the American Battlefield Trust accomplished this feat with a YouTube video. I mean, those guys are experts, so I'm, I'm just a guy talking to a microphone. The chief source of this information, uh, again, it's going to come from what I learned while I was at the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. But to fill in some of the gaps that they didn't talk about or that I wanted to address, I also utilized the National Park Service website's and the American Battlefield Trust. So guys, are you ready to do this? Are you ready to take on this task? I hope so. Please join in with me as we start the stopwatch in three, two, one. Let's do this. So after the American Revolution, the newly formed United States started to grow and expand. With this came new ideas, and with new ideas came disagreements that started to sprout between the states. Again, this was a young country trying to figure out a new system of government, so naturally disagreements are going to arise. One of the chief among these was the issue of slavery. Legislation for the gradual abolition of slavery arose as early as 1780, before the war for American independence had even ended. In 1788, the Constitution was ratified and protected the slave trade until 1808. A year later, in 1789, the Bill of Rights was ratified. Among the amendments, you have the Tenth Amendment, which says that all powers not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution are, quote, reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people, unquote. In 1798, you have the controversial Alien and Sedition Acts that were enacted. And in response, the state legislators of Kentucky and Virginia argued that a state can nullify a federal action it deemed unconstitutional. Fun fact, it's suspected that this defense was secretly pinned by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. This, you know, as you can see, it's kind of setting up the groundwork for secession. Uh, speaking of talks of secession, in 1814, we have the Hartford Convention, where New England Federalists discussed secession from the Union. Fast forward to eight. 1820, you have the Missouri Compromise. 1822, a slave rebellion plot led by Denmark Vesey is uncovered and crushed. In 1828, six years after that, you have a new federal tariff that is challenged by South Carolina. They argue that a single state can nullify a federal law. President Jackson disagreed on this, and this issue would persist until 1832, when South Carolina essentially warned that if the national tariff wasn't made null and void, that they would secede. The next year, Congress passed the Force Act, which gave the president power to enforce compliance. An agreement would be reached, and the union was preserved. For now. Uh, in 1830, you have the rise of the Underground Railroad. In 1831, you have the Nat Turner Rebellion. It was a bloody slave revolt in Virginia. Uh, 57 people were killed. 
Nat Turner and his group of slaves was then captured, tried, and hanged. In 1843, we have the Baptist Church splitting up due to disagreements on slavery. 1846 to 1848, the war with Mexico yields more territories with more territories. That means, you know, oh, is this going to be a slave state or is this going to be a free state? So disagreements from that. 1848, Lewis Cass argues for popular sovereignty, which basically uh, it's a political doctrine that says that people of federal territories should decide for themselves whether their territories uh, would enter the Union as free or slave states. Um 1850, you have the Compromise of 1850. <laughs> 1854 and 1856, Stephen Douglas of Illinois introduced the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed popular sovereignty in those territories in Kansas and Nebraska, which repealed the Missouri Compromise. This caused pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces to fight. Like, literally, they were, they were fighting each other for control in Kansas. In 1856, John Brown murdered five pro-slavery men that same year, a South Carolina senator attacked a Massachusetts senator with a cane after the latter made an anti-slavery speech. John Brown is going to pop up again here in 1859. He's going to pop up in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and seize the U.S. arsenal there. Um, his goal was to begin a slave rebellion. This was put down by a U.S. Army colonel named Robert E. Lee. Amongst those in attendance for John Brown's hanging were Stonewall Jackson, Edward Ruffin, who would fire one of the first shots of the war at Fort Sumter, and the actor at this point, John Wilkes Booth. Finally, in 1860, the Democratic Party is split between two candidates. Because of the split between the Democratic Party, this basically assures that the Republican Abraham Lincoln wins the presidential electoral vote, and pro-slavery states begin to fear that he's going to abolish slavery. In December of 1860, South Carolina secedes from the Union. Two months later, they're joined by Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. And they form what they call the Confederate States of America, the CSA. Uh, Jefferson Davis was made president of the CSA in February of 1862. Now, in 1861, April 12th through April 14th, you have... Fort Sumter, the Battle of Fort Sumter. Uh, Fort Sumter uh, was a Union fort, and with it being in South Carolina, it now found itself in uh, CSA territory. Uh, this fort was garrisoned by Major Anderson and a force of 80 men. It was an unfinished fort, and it needed uh, to be resupplied, so President Lincoln attempted to send these supplies. On April 12, 1861, South Carolina artillerists attacked the fort, unleashing 4,000 shells in a span of 33 hours. No one was injured during this bombardment. But by April 15th, Major Anderson formally surrendered the fort to the rebels. The only casualty, and thus the first casualty of the war, basically they let Major Anderson have a 50-gun salute as he gave up the fort. When the salute happened, there was a straight ember that hit a powder keg. Powder keg ex explodes, and Union Private Daniel Howe would die, and thus it truly begins. That same day, President Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to crush the insurrection, and as a result, over the next few weeks, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee would all secede from the Union as well. Uh, as a result, Lincoln then called for 43,000 more volunteers. 
So the next few months would see skirmishes, and it also sees West Virginia break off from Virginia and become the 35th state of the Union. Now, July 21st, 1861, you have the Battle of Bull Run, or First Manassas, where the Union Army initially succeeded in driving back Confederate forces, but the arrival of troops under General Joseph E. Johnston would see a series of reverses, ultimately sending McDowell's army in a panicked retreat to the defenses of Washington, D.C. Um, August 10th, 1861, United States Army under General Nathaniel Leon attacked Confederate troops at Wilson's Creek, Missouri. Um, this was southwest of Springfield, Missouri, and this ended in disaster for the Union. Uh, after the preceding Battle of Carthage and then this Battle of Wilson's Creek, Missouri would see constant fighting throughout the autumn of 1861. August 28th through 29th, you have the fall of Fort Hatteras in North Carolina to the Union Navy, which represents the first federal efforts to close southern ports along the Carolina coast. You know, again, um, most of you know this, but uh, the Union, they attempted a blockade around the South to prevent them from being able to Important export. Um, October 21st, you have the Battle of Balls Bluff in Virginia, which was another disastrous defeat for the Union forces. November 1st, 1861, General George B. McClellan was appointed as General-in-Chief of all United States armies. He was notorious for moving very slow, very cautiously, but by May of 1862, he would be within eight miles of Richmond, which was the uh, CSA capital. For that, though, from February to May in 1862, you see battles more so on the Western Front. And by West, I mean like Tennessee, Georgia. It's interesting that it's called the Western Theater, but I digress. Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson would fall to Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant, uh, leaving Tennessee open to be invaded. If you want more info about this particular campaign uh, towards the beginning of the war, you can listen to episode 158 of The Gun Rack. And we talk about the first recipients of the Medal of Honor and give a little context into what was going on at that time. April 6th through 7th, you have the ba Battle of Shiloh, which was the first major battle in Tennessee. Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston, a veteran of the Texas War of Independence and the War with Mexico, uh, he's considered to be one of the finest officers for the Confederacy, he was killed on the first day of fighting. On the second day, the Confederates are driven away, and with this battle, Ulysses S. Grant is further solidified as a force to be reckoned with. Furthermore, in the Far West Theater, the Union gathers more victories in the territory of New Mexico. April 18th through May 1st, you have the capture of New Orleans. So with New Orleans under Union control, and Union forces uh, in Tennessee, they now have a strong hold on the Mississippi River. Keep this in mind when we talk a little bit about Vicksburg. Now, as I mentioned before, in the East, General McClellan had 100,000 Union troops only eight miles from Richmond, Virginia. With 35,000 more on the way, the Confederacy needed to act. Enter Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Lee since Stonewall Jackson to conduct a campaign throughout the Shenandoah Valley. Over the course of five weeks, his 17,000 men marched 350 miles. They fought and won five battles. And they were doing this against the Union forces there, who outnumbered his force three to one. As a result of this, they managed to divert 60,000 Union troops away from Richmond. So Richmond, for a hot second, was saved. 
And August 28th through 30th, you have the second Battle of Manassas or Bull Run, which ended in a similar fashion to the first with a retreat of the Union forces led by General John Hope. Now, with that defeat, and then there was a stalemate, uh, it was basically mud at the Battle of Chantilly. Uh, Chantilly? I think that's maybe how it's pronounced. Most of Northern and Central Virginia was now in complete control of the Confederacy. So, Lee, not wanting to surrender the initiative and needing food for his men, decided to head north into Maryland, officially making ground on September 3rd. And Maryland itself was a very interesting state. It was a Union state that owned slaves, so a bit of a dichotomy. So it's hard to say where their allegiances truly lied. I'm sure there was a lot of conflict within the states, but within the people of Maryland at that point. September 8th, 1862, Lee declares in his proclamation to the people of Maryland that his campaign would free Marylanders to join the Confederacy. He didn't actually believe that they would ultimately secede from the Union, but it gave a good enough justification for occupation. Now, securing a new main supply depot in Winchester, Maryland, uh, was of the utmost importance. And in order for that to happen, they would need to capture Harper's Ferry. Uh, you remember Harper's Ferry? On September 9th, plan was set in place. Basically, why the rest of Lee's men would march north to Boonesboro, Stonewall Jackson would march about two-thirds of the Confederate Army back across the Potomac to quickly capture Harper's Ferry. But anytime you're dividing your army it's going to be a bit risky. And it didn't help that General Lee had left his written plans wrapped around some cigars that were found by Corporal Barton W. Mitchell of the Union Army, uh, who quickly relayed this to General McClellan. So as McClellan moves in to destroy Lee's divided forces, the Confederates buy enough time at South Mountain to ultimately make it to Antietam or Sharpsburg. The fighting at Antietam started early on September 17th. By the end of the battle, there was more than 22,000 casualties. Um, just think back to our Southern Battles of the American Revolution series and you know, listen to the casualty counts there and compare the numbers to the ones in the Civil War. It's, it's very striking. Um, the result of the battle, there was no definitive winner. Lee's army was the one who retreated, though, but, you know, they were still kept intact. Um, the North ultimately kind of declared themselves victors of the battle. And as a result, Abraham Lincoln then had the confidence to go ahead uh, with his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And the you know actual proclamation would go into effect January 1st, 1863. The proclamation was a war measure that declared enslaved people in rebelling states to be free. It authorized the enlistment of black troops, and of course, this outraged white Southerners. However, this didn't just affect the people here. Uh, it also affected France and England, uh, who by this point had abolished slavery, and they were sort of on the fence about, oh, do we help the Confederacy or not? This discouraged them from aiding the Confederacy in the war effort. Furthermore, Abraham Lincoln was at this point fed up with George McClellan's lack of action, so he replaced McClellan with Ambrose Burnside, who might have the base, best facial hair of the entire war. Now, the good vibes wouldn't last long as momentum would kind of continue to start favoring the South. 
uh, December 11th through 15th would see the Battle of Fredericksburg, uh, where Lee would win a massive victory over federal forces. Basically, the Union ended up having over twice as many casualties as the rebels in this fight. Burnside and his sideburns would be relieved of their command, and Joseph Hooker was now in charge. Really, at this point, the only thing going for the Union was the Emancipation Proclamation and a victory at Stones River, Tennessee. However, the Union started to realize that the key to winning this war might be found in the Western Theater. So they started focusing more on fully controlling the Mississippi River, and that meant taking out the Confederate stronghold of Vicksburg, Mississippi. So Ulysses S. Grant started to make progress in the areas uh, surrounding Vicksburg. This whole buildup to the uh, siege of Vicksburg ends up lasting from January of 1862 to May of 1862. Uh, meanwhile, uh, beginning in April of 1863, Sorry, I said 1862. I meant 1863 with the buildup and everything to Vicksburg. April 1863, the disarray for the Union continues. Now in command, uh, Hooker tries to outflank Lee's army at Chancellorsville. Starting April 30th, after five days, Lee's aggressiveness drives the Union uh, into another retreat. Uh, and this was yet another bloody battle. It resulted in around 30,000 casualties. For the South, one key casualty that happened was that of Stonewall Jackson, uh, who was shot by friendly fire late in the evening. Uh, Lee was tired at this point of fighting in Virginia. He just lost Stonewall. Uh, and so he asked permission of Jefferson Davis to take the battle north once again, and permission was granted. Meanwhile, things in the West are actually going differently. In 17 days uh, during May, Ulysses S. Grant wins five battles across Mississippi, forcing the rebels to ultimately retreat to the stronghold of Vicksburg. On May 18th, 1863, the battle begins. Unable to break through, the battle then turns into a siege. And at this point, the stakes are high. From now until the 4th of July, there will be two events that arguably shift the entire war in favor of the Union. So, Lee starts making his way into Pennsylvania gets past Maryland, goes into Pennsylvania. Once again, a change is needed at the top for the Yankees. And this time, General George Meade takes over uh, the Army of the Potomac from Joseph Hooker. Uh, George Meade, he had plenty of experience, and he was adamant that he was going to fight. And he would get his wish. On July 1st of 1863, the two armies were moving north towards Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where they ended up colliding with each other at a town called Gettysburg. The Union wanted to hold the town, but was driven back by A.P. Hill and Richard Yule. Crucially, there was a misunderstanding to, as to General Lee's orders, so Yule did not press on to capture Cemetery Hill, which would end up backfiring majorly. Uh, this allowed the Union force to set up defensive positions here and to establish lines that extended towards the South. Uh, now, this next part is the subject of a lot of debate, so I'll just try to give a very general overview of what is said to have, hap said to have happened. All right. So that evening, apparently, James Longstreet, uh, a high-ranking officer that was serving under Lee, was vocal about his reservations 
about attacking the Union at Cemetery Hill, and he advocated for a strategic movement around the left flank in order to force Meade to attack the Confederacy in a defensive position. Lee refused, so Longstreet then proposed an immediate attack. Lee once again refused and made a plan which would see Longstreet attack the Union left flank early in the morning. However, uh, Longstreet was waiting for men to arrive. They, his you know, division or whatever was not ready, and they ended up attacking closer to 4 p.m. the next day. So, so a massive delay, which gave the Union time to reorganize and get more men in defensive positions. So on day two, uh, elsewhere, Yule's men were sent to the right flank, where we'd have the famous engagement at Little Round Top. After spirited fighting on both sides, the Union were able to hold steady. And in the middle of all of this, you have Major General Anderson, who attacked the Union defense around 6 p.m. on day two. Um, I encourage you guys, I might end up doing an episode on this at some point. Look up the story of the first Minnesota. It's inspiring, yet very, very harrowing stuff. But by the end of the second day, both sides suffered heavy losses, yet were still resolute that the fight would continue. That night, despite initially favoring a plan to attack both flanks again, General Lee decided that they should strike the Union center, a plan that Meade saw coming. In fact, he took aside Brigadier General John Gibbon and predicted, quote, if Lee attacks tomorrow, it will be on your front. He's made attacks on both of our flanks and failed. And if he concludes to try it again, it will be on our center, unquote. So day three. Before Lee could start his central charge, the Union actually counterattacked at Culp's Hill, uh, which ended up delaying things. So at 1 p.m., the Confederates unleashed a massive artillery barrage consisting of 140 cannons. The Union responded with their own artillery, and this carried on for about two hours. But as soon as the guns fell silent, Major General George Pickett's men marched towards the heart of the Union lines. Pickett's charge, as it would be called, ultimately failed. Uh, casualties were incredibly high. Um, I think it's reported they lost over 50% of their men in that. So awful stuff. Everyone knows about Pickett's charge. General Lewis Ar uh, Armistead and 150 men were able to break through the lines briefly, but were quickly suppressed. By the end of the day, both armies had casualties anywhere from 46 to 51,000 men. Now, if the Confederates thought that July 3rd of 1863 was bad. The next day, things would just get worse as Vicksburg surrendered to General Grant. So now the U.S. had complete control of the Mississippi River, and it was the same day that Lee retreated to Virginia. Now, George Meade, despite leading the forces to victory, received a lot of criticism and scorn for not crushing Lee's forces as they were retreating. Ultimately, he would lose strategic control of the Army of Potomac to Grant uh, due to this. Now, um, moving on, uh, August to September of 1863, you have the Battle of Chickamauga and the following siege of Chattanooga. So, moving to the Mississippi River again, the next month would see violent conflicts out west. Chattanooga was a major junction for both river and railroad passage, uh, especially for the south. So, it was constantly the source of fighting. In August of 1863, Union forces led by General Rosecrans rushed toward the city, which caused Confederate General Bragg to evacuate the town on September 8th. 
uh, the two armies would collide in a dense forest near Chickamauga Creek. After two days, Confederates broke through and would have caused potentially more devastation if it wasn't for one of the most unsung heroes in the entire Civil War, the Rock of Chickamauga, at Chickamauga himself, General George Thomas and his men. They held their ground, um, allowing the Union to retreat safely. Brave stuff, very successful, but but they had to retreat back to Chattanooga. And during this particular uh, during the Battle of Chickamauga, there was 32,000 casualties on both sides. Um, but by winning this, it gave the South essentially more time to try and win this war. Uh, so they forced the Union back to Chattanooga. General Bragg decided to lay siege upon the city. And on October 17th, Abraham Lincoln made Ulysses S. Grant the leader of the Union's Western Force. His first action, he immediately replaced Rosecrans and promoted General Thomas in his place. Then they were able to establish an effective supply line into the city. So effective, in fact, that Grant was himself was even able to go into the city and plan the attack, um, which, which is crazy. Uh, November 19th, you had the Gettysburg Address. Let's go back to Chattanooga. Uh, after some preliminary battles, the Union attacked the Confederate flanks on November 23rd, 1863. The initial attack was led by General Sherman and General Hooker that were attacking the flanks. Uh, but the Confederacy held firm until General Thomas and his men attacked, which drove the Confederate forces away. Now, without Chattanooga, the already weary Confederacy was without one of its most important supply runs. Uh, how are we doing on time? Let's check. For, oh, my gosh. I don't think we're going to do this. Uh, okay, let's go. Let's go. Uh, March 3rd, 1864. Uh, momentum was starting to favor the Union. Grant assumes command of all U.S. armies. Grant would set his sights on Lee in the east, and he would order General Sherman take on Joseph Johnston in the west. Now, this takes us to the Overland Campaign. Uh, the opening battle of the Overland Campaign was the Battle of the Wilderness. General Lee responded to Grant's attempts to slip through to Richmond by attacking the Union Column in dense woods and underbrush of an area known as the Wilderness, which was west of Fredericksburg. Despite heavy losses, Grant continued his march uh, because he had made up his mind that he would hammer the Confederacy and Lee's army into submission. Over the next month or so, Grant would attack, but Lee would block. Grant keeps moving uh, south. Uh, both armies were constantly fighting, and these were massive armies. You have the battle, uh, the you have the Army of Northern Virginia, and the Army of the Potomac. Um, and because of the size of these groups, casualty counts during this campaign were staggering. Spotsylvania Courthouse, Cold Harbor, um, Wilderness. It, these were meat grinders. Finally, Grant crosses the James River and makes his way to Petersburg. Uh, Petersburg, Virginia was a massive supply hub for the South. Without Petersburg, the capital city of Richmond would fall. So like Vicksburg before it, uh, what was supposed to just be a battle, uh, supposed to be the Battle of Petersburg, uh, would end up as a siege. And the siege would last from June 9th of 1864 to March 25th of 1865 incredible um we're not gonna do this folks i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going though we, we gotta finish this so 
Meanwhile, in the West, Sherman's army of 110,000 was constantly engaged with Johnson's 54,000-strong army of Tennessee. Sherman's goal was to march south from Chattanooga to Atlanta, Georgia. Johnson's defensive strategy, to me, was somewhat reminiscent of Nathaniel Green's strategy against Cornwallis. Basically, Sith, uh, stiff resistance not getting outflanked, followed by cover retreats. So Sherman kept gaining ground, but Johnston at this point was just kind of hoping to demoralize the Union into, hey, we keep throwing men at this and we're not getting by them. Um, however, by mid-July, Sherman was only miles away from Atlanta, Georgia. Jefferson Davis, the uh, CSA president, uh, made a really stupid decision. He was getting frustrated, so he replaced General Johnston with General John Bell Hood, who... One of his first actions was to try and attack Sherman. Of course, this failed, and Hood's army retreated, and this left Elena open for the taking. Thus, on September 2nd, 1864, Sherman would march into the city of Elena. Now, this battle not only affected the war itself, but it also affected American politics. Keep in mind, 1864, this is an election year. Uh, Lincoln is up for re-election, um, and... Despite losing at Gettysburg and Vicksburg, the South was agitating the North, and they were defending pretty well, um, all things considering. Richmond and Petersburg had not fallen, and up to that point, support for the war was starting to dwindle in the North. And um, to further stack the deck against Lincoln, guess who ends up running against him? It's former Union General George McClellan, and McClellan basically promises to end the conflict, uh, to come to a peaceful resolution, one that no doubt would probably see uh, the CSA uh, allowed to continue to exist. However, due to the victory at Atlanta, along with Union forces capturing Mobile, um, Mobile Bay in Alabama, the forcing of rebel troops away from Washington, D.C., and the success that Union forces had near the south of Richmond, the public started to uh, have renewed confidence in the war effort, and they showed this by re-electing Lincoln in a landslide on November 8th of 1864. Now, Sherman, down there in Atlanta, Georgia, he was not content with staying in Atlanta. He wanted to cut the Confederacy into two. He wanted to, quote, make Georgia howl. So on November 15th, he burnt Atlanta to a crisp. He divided his 60,000 men into two columns and started destroying everything in his path as he made his way to Savannah, Georgia. Now, after the butt-kicking he received from Sherman, General Hood thought instead of attacking Sherman's army head-on, what if we attack his slow supplies in Tennessee? If nothing else, maybe we can get him to come back and try to stop us so we don't, you know, get the South cut in half, uh, which wasn't a bad thought. To his credit, you know, there's what were the other options? Um, however, Sherman was not faced by this at all, and he continued his path towards the sea. I mean, after all, Sherman felt quite confident because he had General Thomas to deal with any potential threats in Tennessee, and deal with him he did. After little success 
for Hood and his campaign in Tennessee. On November 20th, Hood pivoted, and he ordered a large frontal attack against the Union forces led by General John Schofield in Franklin, Tennessee. The results, if we're being generous to Hood, the results were mixed. So they did end up taking Franklin, Tennessee, and the Union forces retreated and consolidated in Nashville, Tennessee. But Hood not only lost a, a boatload of men, he ended up losing six of his generals as well in this battle. Meanwhile, December 10th, Sherman's forces take Savannah, Georgia. Uh, he even sends a letter to Lincoln gifting the city of Savannah, Georgia, and all of its guns as an early Christmas present. The march to the sea has been a success. Less than a week later, with him failing to stop Sherman or make any progress in Tennessee, Hood said, "Ah, screw it. We we just got Franklin, Tennessee. Why not? Let's try to take Nashville. Let's let's try to do something." Hood is obliterated by General Thomas, and that just sort of ends that uh, in Tennessee. During this campaign in Tennessee, Hood ultimately lost 12,000 men. At this point, given what has taken place in the South and Lincoln's re-election, there's not much hope for the CSA. Now, let's fast forward through the winter. Starting in February of 1865, Sherman now sets his sights on the Carolinas and General Johnston. After the Battle of Bentonville, Johnston sees the writing on the wall and telling he tells Lee that he most likely won't be able to hold on and can, quote, do no more than annoy Sherman, unquote. Meanwhile, at Petersburg, because that's still going on, Grant has positioned himself south of the city. And given that Sherman is now closing in, this forces Lee to attack, and he launches half his army at Grant at Fort Stedman. But the Union holds and uh, ultimately counterattacks, uh, making progress, battles at White Oak Road and Five Forks then allow the Union to break through the lines at Petersburg, sending the rebels to evacuate, and Petersburg has finally fallen in March of 1865. Lee's generals at this point are uh, encouraging him, saying, hey, let's split up our forces, we'll fight the rest of this a guerrilla style, but Lee's not having it. I th I think Lee sees the writing on the wall at this point, but he's he's got one more one more thing he's going to try. On April 9th, eighteen sixty five, Lee uh, attempts to break through federal forces uh, that were blocking the route west to Danville, Virginia. They're blocked, so Lee seeks an audience with General Grant to discuss terms of surrender. That afternoon, in the parlor of Wilmer McLean, Robert E. Lee signs the document of surrender. On April 12th, the Army of Northern Virginia formally surrenders and is disbanded. The good times for the victory wouldn't last. Two days later, April 14th, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln is assassinated by actor John Wilkes Booth at Ford Theater in Washington, D.C. On the same day, Fort Sumter in South Carolina is reoccupied by Union troops. April 17th, 1865, uh, General Johnston and General Sherman start discussing terms for surrender there. May 4th, General Richard Taylor surrenders Confederate forces in the Department of Alabama, Mississippi, and East Louisiana. May 10th, Confederate President Jefferson Davis is captured near Irwinville, Georgia. 
May 12th, you have the final battle of the Civil War taking place at Palmetto, Palmetto Ranch. I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Palmetto Ranch in Texas, uh, which is actually a Confederate victory. But May 26th, General Simon Bolivar Buckner agrees to terms of surrender of the Army of the Trans-Mississippi, which are agreed to on June 2nd, 1865, with the surrender of the last large Confederate army, the Civil War officially ends. Now, without Lincoln, Reconstruction becomes messy, and debate still rages on today whether it was ultimately successful. Uh, after the war, Lee and Grant both, they urged for a peaceful union between the states. After a decade or so, support for radical reconstruction waned as slavery kind of just turns into sharecropping. By the mid-20th century, after two world wars, the civil rights movement is seen as a second reconstruction. Now, casualties during the U.S. Civil War totaled between 620,000 and 750,000 soldiers dead along with undetermined number of civilian casualties. Insane to think about. Um, so ultimately, the nation heals, but the scars of this conflict can still be felt today. And what time are we at? Okay, well, we didn't quite do it, guys. <laughs> I tried. I tried my best. I'm so sorry. But that's that. That was um, a summarization of the entire U.S. Civil War. Um, Speaking of my experience at the museum, it was really cool. Um, learned a lot. I took around 150 pictures while I was there, so there's a lot of information to go through. I think it might be worth doing an episode on some of the fires from the U.S. Civil War itself. While I was there, I met an older gentleman. Uh, he was a volunteer at the museum, and he took about 20 to 30 minutes of his time just to explain. He was working on a display. I think he was cleaning rifles and stuff. And he had like some mortar rounds laid out. And so I, I talked to him about it for a good while. Uh, and he explained the difference between mortar rounds. He kind of pointed out some hidden in plain sight objects that were in the displays with some really interesting backstories behind them. Like they had, um, they talked about the bird and sharpshooters, uh, stuff like that. He explained what the red on the uniforms meant. It meant that uh, the guys with the red accents on their uniforms that, they were artillery divisions. I even got to hold one of the infield rifles, uh, which was really, really cool. That was that was awesome. So shout out to him. Uh, my only regrets about the museum itself is that I wasn't really a, I could take pictures, but I wasn't allowed to record video or audio, which I totally understand. But there was one exhibit towards the end of you know the end of the museum. It had a board and a video screen, and on this digital board. There are pre-recorded questions, but on the screen, there were actors that were playing historical figures like Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, John Wilkes Booth, etc., with pre-recorded responses. So in my head, I thought it would have been cool if I could have asked those questions in my own voice. And then, you know, we have the actor on the screen responding to the question. It, it would kind of be like a mock interview. So I think that would have been cool. I would have loved to be been able to do that for you know the civil war episode that we just did but um yeah no it was a cool cool museum what do you guys think uh what do you guys think of this episode i 
would you be interested in more of a deep dive into the Civil War, specific battles, people, uh, any particular episodes you'd want to see? I know for me, I'd definitely like to do an episode on General Thomas just because I didn't know about him until the museum. And I feel like that's a shame. Really cool dude. But yeah, please let us know in the comments if you want to see anything uh, else about the Civil War. Really commenting, that's the only way that we're going to be able to kind of gauge that kind of thing. So, guys, thank you so much. I'm sorry we didn't make it. Uh, I tried my best, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, I'm going to have to change the title of the episode now to attempting to explain the entire U.S. Civil War in 30 minutes or less. But thank you guys so much. Uh, really appreciate y'all. This is nice getting back on the mic after a bit of an absence. So, yeah. Have fun, stay safe, and we will see you at the range. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.